Welcome to In Your Area. This special edition episode features a conversation between Francis Stairs of Urban Upgrade and New Infills and Heather Mana of MMG Mortgages. The pair chat about COVID-19 mortgage deferral implications, the current state of interest rates and their impact on buyout penalties, as well as the importance of securing a full pre-approval versus a pre-qualification for your clients early on in effort to mitigate the current delays involved in home financing. Francis talks about the current market in Alberta from a realtor's perspective, and the duo chat about how an agent can best work with their clients to prepare them for mortgage financing in the age of COVID-19. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning and welcome to this episode of the In Your Area podcast. My name is Frances Dares. I'm the broker at Urban Upgrade and New Infills. We are a Calgary area brokerage specializing with uh, new inner city infill homes, uh, also called new infill homes. So we work with a lot of builders and developers and a lot of interesting financial situations as well. Uh, this is a special edition podcast where we will be discussing mortgage deferrals, rising mortgage penalties, interest rates, and turnaround times for financing approvals, all super relevant topics uh, in our current marketplace, especially given COVID. I'm joined this morning by Heather Mana, partner and broker at MMG Mortgages. Welcome, Heather. Thanks for coming in and taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Francis. Well, let's get started. So there's been a lot of conversation about mortgage deferrals lately. Now that we're on the tail end of these, is there any effect on mortgage qualifying for someone who is still in the deferral stages? And why is Alberta seeing the highest deferral rates across the country? So definitely relevant right now is it's affecting so many financial scenarios. So if a client had taken a mortgage deferral, Uh, and it's now on the tail end. So most of them ended in um, October if people got into the deferrals uh, situation at the very beginning when they were offered in kind of April. So what we're seeing when we're doing a mortgage application, if somebody has a mortgage that is in active deferral, a lot of the banks, when we present the application to them, need to see that that mortgage is out of deferral by at least two consecutive payments before they'll approve the financing. Or in some in some cases, the um, the lenders, if the mortgage is in deferral still, it's still active, and it hasn't come out of deferral, they just won't approve the file. They'll send it back. So it is lender discretion. So it's, it just speaks to the fact of always needing to ensure that the client is pre-qualified or pre-approved before they start house shopping so that we can ensure that when a file does come to us, that we're setting the approvals and the possession dates accordingly for the funding. So that's been a bit of a um, situation with with clients because at the very beginning, when the deferrals were offered, um, everybody was told that the deferrals would not affect their credit and would not affect their financial scenario. And it is not affecting credit, that is true, but it is potentially affecting new approvals. So it's not to say that someone will not get approved, but it could definitely um, de- uh, have a have a bearing on someone's possession day. So if someone buys a house that is possession in two weeks and they weren't pre-qualified and they're in an active deferral, we might tell the realtor on the other side or the client that we need to push out their closing date so that we can have that mortgage back in deferral. So those are some of the things that we're seeing. Um, if people now are uh, in a position where they maybe have not taken a deferral 
and now they've just been subject to layoff because of COVID, uh, it's, it's a bit of a gray area. Every bank is now treating new deferrals case by case. So not every um, buddy would actually be able to go into their bank and get a brand new deferral. So we're just really encouraging uh, our, our clients to tell the full story, give the situation of actually what's happened with their income. Are they in financial hardship and what can they do? There are a lot of banks that um, outside of these deferrals and outside of COVID that they give you privileges with your mortgage called skip a mortgage payment option. So a lot of our clients take advantage of this uh, in maybe the Christmas holidays. So say they want to skip a payment for December. Um, if if someone doesn't know if they have that option in the mortgage, um, they can call their broker, they can call their bank, but that can give them a little bit of reprieve. Uh, and again, that could still be offered to somebody who has taken a deferral or not taken an active deferral. You had also asked Francis about um, kind of why we're seeing um, kind of high deferral rates in in Alberta. So um, we actually are the highest province for deferral rates. So CMHC recently came out with a statistic uh, showing the deferral rates across the country. So we are absolutely by far the highest. Uh, Calgary is at 18%. Edmonton is at 21% for deferral rates. That is compared to, say, a city like Toronto, who's currently at 12%. So we are a lot higher. Um, That really does speak to the fact that we are in the energy sector. So that's a huge part of it. It was a lot of layoffs. People were concerned, uh, even if they had not been laid off, they were concerned that they could be laid off. And so they took the deferral, maybe whether they needed it or not. So, um, you know, hopefully going forward, our energy sector stays, you know, stable where it's at and we don't see a lot of kind of looming layoffs to follow. But that's really what's been a big part of our um, kind of provincial ratios as far as the deferrals across Canada. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, our economic situation is vastly different here than it is out east or in some of the larger centers, you know, outside of Alberta. So definitely, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, that just, I think, really goes to show that, you know, it really is important to have a proper pre-approval done before shopping for a home versus, you know, a lot of buyers seem to think that, you know, a lot of the online tools are adequate. And, you know, a lot of agents, don't necessarily realize to to ask more questions and ensure that you know a full pre-approval has been you know done prior to shopping not just you know a quick pre-qualification especially with all of these these moving parts and um, a lot of things that maybe buyers just aren't even thinking about you know when they get excited about looking for a property so yeah and and you're right there's a difference between an underwritten pre-approval and just a quick 60 second pre-qualification on a bank's website and we can kind of get into that a little bit further um, later on too but there it's more important than ever even outside of the deferrals to have your fully underwritten pre-approval before somebody actually starts house shopping yeah for sure well and you had mentioned that um, you know it is still I guess possible to get a deferral but it's a case-by-case basis is that correct yeah so if somebody is wanting to actually defer um, under say these COVID pretenses and look for reprieve on their payments for you know three months six months it is 100% case by case Uh, and again it's truly dependent on if that person is in financial hardship Um, if the bank is perhaps not keen on it on offering the deferral but if that mortgage is insured say through um, CMHC Canada Guarantee or Sagen, who is now the new Genworth just rebranded if if 
it is insured, then the lender can actually approach the insurer and the insurer does try to do whatever they can to work with the client. At the end of the day, um, the bank and the insurer, they don't want the house back. They don't want it to go into foreclosure. They do want to work with the client. So, you know, the best advice that we can give is that even if the bank says no when a client is asking for the deferral and if they don't have the ability to skip a mortgage as per their contracted agreement, the best thing that they can do is write a letter to the insurer, write a letter to the bank. Um, there's areas on all of their websites that you can actually put um, detailed commentary and I can assure you that the insurers do read those and they do get back to people and they will try to work with the clients to make sure that um, a Essentially, they stay in their house. Yeah, that makes sense. I think no one's in the business of, or I guess the banks aren't really in the business of wanting to take homes. It's just unfortunately so true. the reality of what sometimes happens. So, okay, well, that, that's really interesting. So, I mean, on another topic, so we've heard a lot lately about mortgage penalties rising. Um, this is something that we've seen come up quite a few times actually over the last little while in some of our transactions as well. So, how can we combat this or how can we mitigate this? How can we protect our clients, you know, when they've got a lot of equity in their home that they're using for their purchase? Um, um, maybe yeah. you can speak to that. Um, and so, great question. This is, um, it's come up too many times here in the last little while. Everybody is very excited that interest rates are dropping, which is great for, you know, their mortgage payments, new purchase. Um, but what it's having an effect on is the penalties. So really, as the mortgage rates are dropping, certain penalties are increasing. And it really depends on if you're in you know, a variable versus a fixed rate. So to clarify, if somebody has a variable mortgage, the penalty is typically always three months of interest. If right. somebody has a fixed rate mortgage, it will be the greater of the two between three months interest and an interest rate differential, which is referred to as, as an IRD penalty. So we are definitely seeing the IRD penalties being calculated in more times than not. And those IRDs really are subject to interest rates um, uh, dropping and the banks have also increased their short-term rates and it affects what the total cost is to a borrower. The, the thing that's a challenge to us is that as a broker or a bank or a client calling to get the penalty details from the lender, the amount that they give us is subject to change daily. And we have seen in too many situations lately that that penalty has almost doubled. It could go from 5000 to 10000 to 15000 in a matter of weeks. Wow. So if somebody has been pre-approved for a mortgage and they have an existing mortgage on their house and they're looking to sell and buy a new property. Uh, we would do an underwritten pre-approval upfront. We would calculate the net sale proceeds of what that individual should be receiving. And if the equity is really skinny coming out of that house, and if we're really relying on that equity for the down payment, that could definitely affect the closing of a transaction for one of your buyers. So if that penalty ends up um, increasing from the day that we get the quote to the actual uh, sale date, then, you know, honestly, we could be in trouble. So we need to do whatever we can to disclose these situations up front to the agents on, you know, um, the buying side, to the client, and see if we can put any um, safekeepings in place to ensure that um, that those penalties maybe don't rise, or if they do rise, what can we do to have kind of a buffer or a backup? So a couple of things there. If if again, if the bank or the broker or the client calls 
Penalties are subject to change daily. However, if a lawyer requests a payout statement within 30 days that um, of closing, that penalty will not change. It's typically locked in for those 30 days if it's an IRD. So if you have a buyer who has a possession date on January 1st, we need to all be proactive where we ask the lawyer to get a payout statement on December 1st or 30 days prior. Right. Um, that penalty can be held. So if if we don't do that and the lawyer calls and gets a payout uh, uh, kind of days before closing, that penalty could be higher then than it was the month prior. So just being very proactive and getting the lawyer's involvement from day one is, is, is again, uber important. Um, there are other things that we've had to use quite frequently. There's cashback mortgages that the banks can, can approve. So for instance, if somebody was to approach us today for a standard mortgage, maybe, um, say a high racial mortgage, maybe the interest rate is closer to say 1.74. Someone could take advantage of a cashback mortgage and get anywhere from 1% to say 3% of a cashback um, paid to them at closing. Now the interest rate's higher, but it's anywhere from 1.99 to 2.39. So it is a higher interest rate, but they could then get a cashback as a buffer period that they could really could use to put towards a penalty or a payout. Right, right. Um, so if we know that the scenario is really skinny, um, we can try to set the client up with a cashback mortgage as a plan B. So if something happens and that penalty is increasing, we've got that in our back pocket. Now, not every bank offers those cashback mortgages, and I'm not suggesting that it's the best mortgage in every scenario, but if somebody is selling and somebody is buying, and we have done you know, our due diligence as much as we can up front, um, and some of, the, some of these things are not um, within our control, we do have tools kind of in our back pocket that we can use, such as those cashback mortgages, to try to soften the blow of penalties. Um, we can, of course, always look at porting a mortgage. Um, so transferring a mortgage from one house to the next, that's another way to combat the penalties. Um, but porting isn't available for, for every client in every scenario. And it's also not something that um, that every bank offers in their mortgages. So it's, it's, again, just educating the client as much as we can up front. We need to do our due diligence by uh, inquiring what the penalty is telling the client that it's subject to change and then looking at different things that we can do to try to either negate those penalties or put a buffer in place. Right, that makes sense. So it sounds like the key here is really to be proactive and you know look at the, the total financial situation up front so that you know what you're dealing with and if this is a you know a possibility um, for something that might apply. Uh, and it sounds like with 30 days you know, notice or 30 days guarantee from from the lawyer seeking that payout penalty, you know, this is something that could be an issue for, you know, closings that we have that are 90, you know, 60, 90 days out where maybe there's no guarantee then on what that payout penalty might be. Exactly. And so, so when we're, when we're calculating, you know, net sale proceeds of what we're expecting the client to get out of their home, we can only base it on the quote that we get upfront from the penalty. So what we try to do is always leave a contingency or a buffer from their sale proceeds um, to what you know um, they could be left with at the end of the day. And so uh, again, it's just all about disclosure. So we need to give the clients full disclosure if their down payment is really skinny and their down payment is coming from a sale of a home where a penalty could be relevant, we need to ensure that everybody knows up front what we could be facing. I mean, the last thing any of us need is for our client to be siding at the lawyer 
you know, weeks before possession and have a situation where maybe it doesn't close because we don't have enough proceeds. So it's all about disclosure and ensuring that we're setting the client up for success at the end. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I mean, in many cases, you know, some buyers aren't even signing until days before with the lawyers. So this certainly has the potential to be a really last minute surprise for somebody uh, on closing. So, so true. That's great. You know, I'm curious, have you ever seen a lender negotiate uh, a payout penalty? We have. It's rare. So if somebody is in a scenario where they cannot port their mortgage, um, say if they're facing financial hardship, mm-hmm. then there's definitely a scenario that you know us as the broker representing the client or the client can approach the bank to try to negotiate that. But at the end of the day, if the client is not in financial hardship and if they're just trying to get a discount, I'm certain the bank will say no and they typically always do but if somebody has a really big banking relationship um, maybe the bank will do some discretionary pricing but that would really involve kind of getting the direct branch manager involved seeing what they could do but again if someone is not in financial hardship or they don't have a really large banking relationship chances are there's there's no opportunity to negotiate that okay that's interesting well and another question about interest rate uh, differentials so my understanding is that you know every bank you know not every bank but a lot of banks do calculate that differently so maybe you can speak a little bit to that and how you know that can vastly change what a payout penalty would be you know given this the same interest rate um, from lender to lender yeah it's a really good question so um, absolutely not knocking the big banks here but it is just the reality that a lot of the big uh, charter banks they calculate their penalties based on a higher interest rate differential calculation so they will use for instance maybe a posted rate when they're looking at that IRD difference where some of the smaller lenders whether they're it's a credit union a trust company or a monoline lender um, they will actually calculate based on a closer contracted interest rate So when I say contracted rate, that's closer to the actual mortgage rate that the client is paying, not a posted rate, which is typically a few percentage points higher. Right. So if somebody is very concerned about buying a home and engaging a a new mortgage that could have a penalty in the future if they're not able to port their mortgage and if they break their their term within, say, the five-year period, then we will have that conversation up front and try to direct the client to a bank that has a lower IRD calculation going forward. So really, we do find that with some of the smaller lenders. So, um, And the smaller lenders, um, these are still very large um, banks. I mean, most of them have their bank licenses. They are all governed by um, OFSFI, which is a superintendent. They, um, they're they not small, unreputable companies. These are lenders that have most of the mortgage market share in all of Canada. So when I say smaller lenders, I don't want that to come off like they're of concern because they're really not. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I guess that also just, you know, is a reminder that it's important for you know, buyers to be actually approaching their bank to get their proper payout penalty and not just doing some sort of, you know, online calculation or, or quick math when they're trying to determine what that interest rate differential might be. Yeah, and that's a good point because when we present a mortgage approval to a client, the actual commitment letter itself doesn't always speak to what the IRD calculation is. It right. actually very rarely speaks to it. They don't get that detail until they're actually signing at 
the lawyers, which again can be weeks or days before possession. Right, and for most buyers, I mean, the whole concept of IRD and all the math that goes along with it, you know, is a foreign concept, right? I mean, it's not something that everybody can, you know, easily, um, you know, pick up yeah. and understand. So. It's not just about the rate. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, okay, well, you know, I was wondering, you know, what's your opinion with respect to mortgage rates? I mean, right now they're just, they're so low. Do you think it's a good time to buy? You know, where do you see rates headed? You know, what's what's your crystal ball say? Actually, just uh, two days ago, the Bank of Canada had their ninth meeting of the year. Uh, they agreed to leave the overnight rate the same. So what that means is, uh, in a nutshell, prime rate is not changing. So that's not a surprise to anybody. That's good news. But what they did uh, announce, they were quite bold in saying that as long as the inflation rates in Canada stay below 2%, that they will not be increasing the overnight rate for probably years. So we could see another you know, two to four years of low interest rates, um, which is fantastic for buyers. It's fantastic for people looking to remortgage. So um, the, the important thing to note, though, is that the overnight rate and prime rate really is uh, represents what the variable interest rates will do. So variable rates, meaning that they can go up or down. Um, but the fixed rates are actually more so based on the bond market. So completely different things. However, again, with the, the bond market, that's really based on inflation as well. Um, and so as long as everything stays pretty status quo, the fixed rates should also stay quite low. Um, I, I can't say that they will go much lower than they are because I, I don't see how they could go that much lower. But I also don't think that we're in jeopardy of seeing um, sharp increases or inclines over the next you know, year even. Right. So nothing, nothing too exciting on the horizon. Um, but certainly I agree with you there. I mean, the odds of us seeing lower interest rates than where they're at just seem, you know, really slim given just how how cheap money is these days, you know, comparatively speaking to, to exactly. years past. So Yeah, yeah. We, we get the question a lot, um, you know, as far as, as rates is, you know, is it a good time to buy? And I mean, as far as interest rates are concerned, absolutely. But, you know, I'd, I'd actually love your feedback on what you think when someone's asking you if it's a good time to buy just based on market commentary, because a lot of clients even ask us, um, you know, with rates low, that's great. But in this current climate, should I wait because our house price is going down or our house price is actually increasing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting, interesting question. I mean, ultimately, you know, we always encourage our clients to, you know, buy based on their personal circumstances and nev- never overextend because, you know, whether you live in Calgary, whether you live in Edmonton, whether you live in any part of Canada, really, you know, job security is not always what you think. And, you know, the last thing that we want to do is um, see our clients, you know, stretching themselves into um, some sort of a situation where they, you know, can't afford some volatility in their, in their employment or in their personal lives moving forward. So, you know, that aside, you know, this has been, you know, an interesting year, uh, to say the least, for real estate. I mean, when the pandemic first hit, you know, we immediately were forecasting a decline in sales. We immediately forecasted, you know, a decline in home prices, which, you know, we saw happen quite quickly. Uh, But we've also seen a considerable rebound, you know, something that, you know, we anticipated, but we're just really unsure of the time frame for. And, you know, I think I can say, you know, with absolute confidence that this rebound has been, you know, stronger than most people anticipated and quicker than most people had anticipated. And, you know, I think that that's, you know, due to a couple of things. You know, first of all, we had a little bit of a deferral uh, of, you know, prospective home buyers from our spring market, which is our, 
you know, typically our busiest time of the year. So, you know, when July hit, you know, we saw increased activity and that's carried right through till today and still seems to be moving, moving forward in a similar direction. And part of that was just, you know, people who had sort of pushed pause for a couple of months and then they were jumping back in and that compounded on top of, you know, folks who probably would have been buying or, or making a transition in the summer and the fall months anyways. But, you know, uh, we've also seen uh, sort of a considerable shift in activity just based on, you know, buyer preferences and, and the needs of many uh, homeowners changing over the last six months. You know, being cooped up at home has certainly given, you know, a lot of folks the itch for something new or something bigger, uh, but it's also, you know, made it, um, you know, a, a need for many people to have a different type of property, you know, whether that be something that provides for a home office or whether that be something that provides a little bit more, you know, outdoor space or yard space. Uh, And then working from home has opened up, you know, a whole different level of community for for many people, you know, not having to be tied to uh, a commute and being close to a certain area of the city has has just opened things up for a lot of people. So, you know, we've definitely seen an increased activity um, levels or increased activity levels because of all of these things combined. And, you know, that has all culminated in a strengthening market so you know we're we're just about um, caught up here for the year for our sales from last year and you know if we look historically we're, we're still talking slow sales with respect to you know where Calgary has been in years past um, which is still you know a bit of a result to the economic environment that we're in um, but definitely we're, we're catching up to where we were last year which is um, considerable change um, compared to where we saw things headed back in March and April Um, and you know prices have started to strengthen in certain areas as well now the the most interesting effect of um, not just the pandemic but also just the economic reality that Calgary is facing right now in the oil and gas sector is that we have a very divergent market so your question about whether prices are going up or prices are going down or what's happening honestly truly depends on what level of uh, price point uh, a buyer's looking at, what sector of the market they're shopping in, and, you know, whether they're looking in, you know, a big city, a small town, you know, what what type of category of home are they they looking for? Uh, We've seen, you know, quite different trends depending on all of those factors. So, you know, for example, um, the pandemic definitely gave buyers uh, not every buyer, but a lot of buyers, the itch for private outdoor space. Um, so we have seen, you know, a little bit of a, a pullback and a pull away from, um, you know, apartments uh, and and a lot of would be apartment buyers shifting into townhomes or into single family. Um, and in those same price categories, they're typically moving a little bit more suburban. So you know, a buyer that had you know four hundred thousand dollars to spend on an apartment condo last year and was thinking they wanted to be downtown and close to work, you know, this year is now maybe considering buying a, a townhome or a single family property in a suburban area instead. And so that sort of, um, that trend has played out across a number of different sectors. So the apartments um, have been a little bit affected. We're still seeing price declines there. We are anticipating further declines in, you know, the apartment sector, but it does depend on price point. So, you know, the entry level uh, apartment sector has seen, you know, actually a little bit of, of a boon in activity because it's, you know, um, it, it's still an affordable part of the market and and that's where buyers are sort of shopping Um, townhomes have have definitely risen in popularity we've seen you know increased sales not just in resale um, but in the new home sector so we've just seen a a lot of transactions occurring um, across both over the last um, you know six months and 
I guess, the biggest sector to see an improvement in sales and also resulting strengthening in prices has actually been the entry-level single-family home market. And that's because people are looking for a little bit more space these days. Um, They're spending much more time at home. They're looking for more yard space, which single-family properties um, typically offer. And, you know, in the suburban markets where prices are a little bit more affordable, um, that's where we've seen sort of the biggest rush of activity uh, over the last sort of three, four months. And, you know, as with every, every market and any market, it's all supply and demand. So in any sector where we've got an increased demand and we have a limited supply, like in entry-level single-family homes, we've seen a bit of a, a boost in, in sales activity. And, um, you know, on all of our market sectors, except for apartments, we're, we're pretty much back in balanced conditions now, which is, which is great. Not something that we were really hopeful was going to happen so quickly. It's good to hear because we have a lot of people that are often asking us if they should, you know, hold off because prices are potentially dropping. And um, based on what you've just said, I would say that that's probably not the case in our immediate future, that prices should at least be staying steady. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there are certain sectors that are, you know, soft and are still softening. And that's primarily more the luxury luxury home segments. Um, But every community has its own, you know, level where, you know, entry level sits in terms of price and and luxury sits so you know to to put a blanket statement out there and say you know anything over a million dollars is soft would be inaccurate um there are certain marketplaces where a million is just a starting point and and sales are booning so you know it's just very very market specific and market dependent um and you know ultimately you know when you're looking at at you know making a purchase you really do have to take into consideration all of those factors yeah, no, that's perfect. And thank you. That totally provides lots of clarity. Well, and, and another interesting trend uh, that we have seen over the last sort of three, four months has been a real boost in pre-sales. So we do, like our team does a lot of business with new infill properties and homes that are under construction. And we have just had a ton of sales happen over the last few months uh, where buyers are looking to get in before the homes complete. Uh, you know, they're looking to customize. They're looking to make it what they're looking for with respect to floor plans, with respect to finishes. And, you know, although that's always been popular, we've definitely seen an increase in that popularity recently. Do you think that's because of COVID where people are wanting to buy new and not, you know, a pre-existing home that families are already living in? Or do you think that that is lack of inventory or a little bit of both? That's probably a little bit of both. I think for some people, it's probably less of a concern about, you know, buying a home that someone's been in from a COVID standpoint, because there is always the potential for sanitation and whatnot. Um, but the appeal of new homes uh, and the appeal of being able to customize, you know, how that home's going to fit their needs, I think has definitely, in, in, you know, increased. Uh, as people have been spending more and more time at home, you know, the the gaps in their current properties have really been magnified. Um, and so they're looking to sort of adjust for that in their new properties. Um, I think people have also, you know, just you know, depending on the price point, also found that there was less properties available, like you said, that were complete. And that's probably less due to to COVID and more due to just the economic environment in Calgary. Because, you know, in the new home sector, we do, at least in the inner city, tend to see, you know, real ebbs and flows in supply. You know, it can take six to 12 months for a home to be built. And, you know, a lot of these um, smaller builders, you know, when times get a little bit tougher, will pull back on on construction. Um, you know, they, maybe they won't move ahead on building that, that home that they've been planning to do, uh, or maybe they won't acquire any more land because they want to just sort of hold off and keep capital, um, you know, by their side for, for the short term. And what that can do is just 
on an aggregate basis is can really cause sort of big boosts in supply um, and then big pullbacks in supply. And we have sort of sort of seen a bit of a dwindling in supply in the entry level infill price categories. And so definitely a lot of the pre-sales that we're seeing are for homes that are in that sort of entry level price point uh, or for homes that have some interesting features like suites or, you know, extra living space um, that can be used for home offices. Um, we've seen a huge boost in popularity of the home office in the, in the modern new infill home, which over the last couple of years really had actually been pulled back you know most buyers had been opting to maximize kitchen and maximize living space versus having a you know main floor home office and that's really done a 180 recently Um, but we've also noticed you know some builders adapting by trying to have the best of both worlds and maybe fitting in that home office on an upper level or in the basement level of a home and you know trying to make it more attractive than you would typically see a you know a basement home office be in on, on a retrofit basis so yeah, and that, that honestly, it, it actually mimics a lot of what we hear when clients are calling in for new financing. Um, that's why they're looking to move, is they just want a more suitable home for the current environment. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, and, and the unfortunate reality is, you know, COVID's here. It So far as we can tell, it's here to stay. So, you know, buyers are certainly getting the itch. Um, you know, we've just lived through, you know, spring, which was, you know, full lockdown and a lot of interior living. And then summer where, you know, people were spending a lot of time outside and really enjoying that and, you know, looking to sort of plan for next year accordingly based on what they've learned from this year. Great. Yeah. No, thank you for that, uh, for the commentary. Like I said, it's, uh, I think, super valuable for us to know on the financing side too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, on another topic, uh, one more question for you with respect to mortgage approvals. One thing that we've noticed uh, a lot lately has actually been that financing has been taking a lot of time or a lot of extra time, it seems, to be approved. Is that something that you're seeing across the board or maybe you can speak as to why that's happening? Yeah, that's one of the biggest questions that we're getting from clients and from real estate agents and from home builders alike. So um, gone are the days of quick 72-hour approvals, unfortunately. So really, we're advising our you know realtor partners, our clients, that when they're putting in an offer, I hate to say it, but 10 days turnaround time. Um, it is It is longer and obviously we will try to do whatever we can to get the approval faster and to be in a position to waive conditions before that 10-day mark. But I think it's just important to let everybody know that it is better to advise our, our sellers and our buyers up front that um, to get 10 days, get sufficient time instead of getting your five-day condition date and then having to ask for extensions later. It just makes for a more pleasurable experience on all sides if we can have a longer condition timeline. So why are we seeing this? So the, it, at the end of the day, in a nutshell, COVID has really affected this. Number one, as you're talking um, about the current market trends, it is busy. It is very, very busy. The mortgage insurers, the lenders, they were not expecting that. They have a backlog on their end. Um, they're also dealing with people who now can't come to the office because maybe they're isolating, maybe they're quarantining. So their staff levels are down. So they are working on a more skeleton staff across Canada. So that is affecting turnaround. But the biggest thing that we've noticed, um, and from all of the commentary that we've received from really researching this with the insurers and the lenders, it's really due to to the applicant's change of their potential income or employment or credit situation this year. So speaking about the deferrals, the deferrals have created a, a backlog when we submit a new application to the mortgage or the insurer. We have to provide more commentary on what happened with the deferral. The banks are saying, 
if somebody owns three properties and they took deferrals on three properties for six months and now they want to buy a new home, are they in a financial position to buy a new home? Did they take that deferral because they were financially impacted or just because they wanted to um, potentially put money in the bank instead? So, you know, we have to ask a lot more questions and really sell that application to the bank. And as soon as the, um, the file hits the lender or the insurer, they are looking at it and scrutinizing those applications more for someone that has a deferral. So those are that is creating a backlog but more so it's a client's change of income so many people had been laid off or had had reduced hours some companies um, offered you know to keep people employed but voluntary pay cuts some people um, say the airline business I mean you know they kept uh, a lot of their employees you know employed but offered them different types of pay even outside of the curb payment so when, when we have an application that comes across our desk now and the year-to-date income is different than somebody who, say, made, or is lower, I should say, than somebody who made more substantial income in the last two years, then we need to see, is, is this lower income going to stay? Are their hours reduced permanently? Are we using a two-year average income from previous years to qualify when yet their current income is half of what it was before? So there's a lot more um, information that we need to get from the clients, more mitigation, more paperwork. We need to, again, sell a better story to the lender. When the lender receives the application, in the past, they would look it over and say, this makes sense, it's within our policy, it's within our guidelines, send it to the insurer if it requires insurance, um, and it might just auto-approve at the insurer or just you know, um, come back very quick within a one, two hour turnaround time. Um, the turnaround times are lagging at the insurers because what we've seen is more lenders are actually requesting review from the insurers. So they are asking for a voluntary second set of eyes. The reason that the banks are asking for this is insurance is like, um, mortgage insurance is like any insurance. They don't have to pay out to the bank if the bank has been reckless in approving a file where they have not done proper mitigation of somebody's income. So if if that client goes into foreclosure next year and the insurer looks at the file and the documents and they say, you know, the bank shouldn't have maybe approved this because they're using a lower income or sorry, a higher income when the applicant's not quite earning that at that level now due to COVID, they might not pay out. So the banks are being very, very cautious and they're actually asking for a second set of eyes for the insurer to do a more in-depth review of that application to make sure that their bases are covered. So that is creating a backlog um, on all files. So it's it's not uh, a quick 72-hour turnaround time where um, things are straightforward. There is, uh, as we say, there's it seems to be there's hair on every file. And it's not that they're not good files, it's just it's taking a lot more time and mitigation and due diligence on all ends to ensure that those files get approved and approved accurately. So that is creating a backlog. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it is just the reality of our timeline. So we are strongly encouraging 10-day turnaround time. And if we can waive finance conditions before, fantastic. Okay. So when you say 10 days, just to be clear, you mean 10 business days? Yeah. So exactly. two full weeks. Two weeks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of sellers aren't too happy with a two-week condition period when the, that offer comes in. It's so true. And, and you know, if, if you're finding that you're getting pushback or that we need quicker timelines, just I encourage you just to 
talk to your broker, talk to the bank, see if there's anything that can be done up front um, to kind of collect documents quicker. We have to explain it to the buyers too that, you know, we do need more paper than we ever have before. Um, and as long as the, the borrower is proactive and as long as the borrower has been able to quickly provide their documentation to us. Um, and if, if us as a brokerage have done our upfront due diligence and done an actual underwritten pre-approval upfront, then hopefully it's a quicker turnaround time and we shouldn't need two weeks. But it, it's all about, again, disclosure and communication, right? right? So we all are working towards the same goal of getting that client approved and getting those homes sold and getting a customer into that new home. So uh, it's it's more communication up front. I do recommend two weeks. If there's a situation where someone uh, needs it faster, just talk to us, talk to the bank, talk to the broker, and we'll all try to rally together to see what we can do. Okay. So again, just another, uh, yet another reason why having a full pre-approval done up front, you know, with a solid broker who can, you know, cover all those bases is really so important. Yeah, um, absolutely. you know, there, there's plenty of multiple offer situations out there right now. And, you know, certainly an offer that's got, you know, a seven-day turnaround on financing versus, a, you know, a 14-day turnaround on financing would be viewed dramatically different um, in this environment. So, yeah. Yeah, you're um, so right. Yeah, so I guess so. What I'm hearing here is that if a buyer is wanting to make, you know, their situation more attractive in an offer, or you know, put themselves ahead of the pack, if you will, um, really gathering all that supporting paperwork is what they need to do, and, and work with their their mortgage person to make sure that their file is as complete as it can be right from day one. Yeah, and and as a real estate agent, um, I encourage everybody to ask their clients for a pre-approval letter. So you know, if you say to your client, "Have you been pre-approved?" The clients will say, yeah, I'm good to go. But how in-depth is that pre-approval? Have they provided all of the documents? And I think it's important to to ask for a copy of that pre-approval certificate. If, if the bank or the broker does not want to provide that, it's likely because there hasn't been enough due diligence done up front. Right, right? that so, makes sense. So I, I would just, again, it's all about the communication. And I would, I would ask your client if they're comfortable with you communicating directly with the broker or with the bank and, you know, contact them directly and say, do you have all the documentation? Do you have the, the paperwork? Has the income been, you know, verified? And, and I wouldn't feel like you're overstepping your, your boundaries. Again, we're all working together on, on the same goal. And as long as the client's providing that consent that we can work together, then that's the best thing that we can do to try to make the turnarounds tighter. Okay, that makes sense. Well, one more question for you. Have you seen a lot of deals collapse based on financing? At the start of COVID, absolutely. Yeah, people were, um, even if they hadn't lost their job, they were concerned about losing their job. And so they 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 were pulling out of offers or maybe they had um, uh, an, a live offer and their job security was good, but when the stocks were really down, their investments were down. Um, the money in the bank was lower. And so they were concerned about their down payment funds by the time that possession rolled around. So we did see a lot of people voluntarily um, back out, but we've actually seen a lot of those people come back. So we kept their pre-approvals active. And now, you know, five months later, they're buying again. So consumer right. confidence has definitely uh, increased. But uh, as far as actual files full collapsing because of um, someone's financial um, means, I can confidently say that we have found a solution to every one of those problems. So okay. definitely there's been some tricky ones on our plate. 
Um, but really it's going back to the drawing board and having somebody that can really dig in and really work hard to get the client reapproved under whatever pretenses that might be. Right, okay, and provi- being able to provide context to the lender to, to get that, that file approved where without the context maybe they would be inclined to decline. Absolutely, yeah, sometimes it, uh, it just seems that files need a little bit more work these days than they ever used to, which is great. I think it just adds a further level of accountability. Right, that makes sense. Okay. Well, wow, that's just been so great, so informative. Thank you so much, Heather, for all of your um, knowledge and expertise, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, Definitely, it's been an interesting year, and I think it's just going to continue for us here. So, yeah, thank you, everyone out there, for listening, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to, to listen today. Hopefully, you found this as informative as I have. If you have any further questions for Heather, you can reach out to her via the website. Uh, her website is mmgmortgages.ca. And if you have any further questions for me, uh, I can be found on my websites, urbanupgrade.ca or newinfills.ca. Thanks again. Thank you, Francis. Thank you to Francis and Heather for their time, and we hope to see you the next time we are in your area.